Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show. Today is a special episode because uh, we have 10 fingers, and so we use a decimal counting system. And uh, today is our 100th episode. So in the decimal system, this is a really important episode for us, a big milestone uh, to have 100 shows. Oh, man. I, I can see you explaining to your wife why celebrating your anniversary is just an arbitrary thing that <laughs> happens to be a day with the same name as the one you got married on. <laughs> Seriously, though, it is kind of hard to believe with how difficult it was to get those first five episodes out the door in 2019, but this is indeed episode 100. And we find it useful for ourselves and for our clients to not just get stuck heads down delivering week after week, but to stop and zoom out to appreciate progress and to make sense of the bigger picture. So that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. All right. To start off our celebratory 100th episode, then we're going to highlight a few of our favorite episodes and why we think they might be worth revisiting, especially for people that might be new to the show. So Richard, why don't you kick us off? What are some of your favorites? I still really like episode seven, which was season two, episode two, which was what can teams learn from a jazz combo? Um, if you haven't seen that one, it's particularly fun because we're not just talking about that concept, but Peter is playing with a real jazz combo and I'm interviewing them in between songs. And it's a fascinating look at uh, a different perspective on teams, especially teams doing complex collaborative work. It's fun to have that record of that because that was sort of in the theme of jazz was an improv open space session for an early scrum conference where I thought, huh, I wonder if we could make this happen. And I literally put a Facebook call out to see if anybody in New Orleans knew other jazz players. And we found, uh, I think, a quintet of people I'd never met and just did this thing to say, there's a, there's a link here. So that's a fun thing to have a record of. Um, episode 39 on hiring was a memorable one for me. Hiring is such a big challenge in many organizations. And I think the way Hart and Annette at Therispex have solved the challenges around finding good people, interviewing well, uh, it's so unique. And I would love to see that catch on more. Yeah, that's an interesting one from a process standpoint for me too. And I know we're going to probably reflect a little bit on what we've learned from the process of this uh, as we get later in the episode today. But that episode, I tried to take the idea of if we were to do a This American Life production aesthetic for the Humanizing Workshop, what would it take? And it turns out it takes days and days of work to do. So it was like a, a really cool experiment to see what does it take. And now we know. <laughs> That's why we only did it once. Yeah. <laughs> and almost 50 episodes ago. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. We, we chose yeah. not to spend, uh, you know, days and days of our time on any one given episode, even though that was probably a good one to spend that time on. Yeah. Um, both jazz and hiring were long episodes. And for our short kind of content packed ones, episode 56, where we introduce the three jobs of management model is so practical. And since we shot that, I've heard from many people among our clients and followers of the show that they share that one more than any other, because it really does answer that question. Um, what's my job as a manager if I'm in an organization with empowered teams and individuals? Yeah, I particularly like that one because it's one that resonates no matter what industry or type of work people do. A, a lot of our episodes are pretty agile centric because that's where our background is. That's where a lot of our clients are are wanting our help, but the three jobs seems to be pretty broadly applicable in any organization. 
I think that's true. And then my last one in my favorite episodes is 84, where we interviewed Lee McCormack, who has been my bike coach for a long time and has become a good friend of me and my family. Uh, Lee is full of so many insights, not just on coaching, but really on life. And that episode is packed with interesting stories and good advice. Uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't yet. Just just for the facial hair, worth checking out. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste, Lee. <laughs> All right. How about you, Peter? What are some of your favorite episodes from the last hundred? Um, well, I just got back from my annual trip to the Grand Canyon. And so uh, top of mind for me is the episode we did, I think it was a year ago. Yeah, it would have been a year ago. Um, where I reflected on kind of my journey from the couch to the Grand Canyon, where last year I did both directions, it was 45 miles. It's a crazy, crazy long run. Uh, this year I took it easy and just did about 30. Uh, but the thing I like about that episode the most is um, how we get to touch a little bit on the stories we tell ourselves, and especially how many of our stories that we tell about who we are, are uh, can be sort of self-limiting. Like, I am not this, or I can't do that. And it was such a powerful experience for me personally um, that I was happy to share what I learned from that experience of really becoming a runner uh, in uh, at a pretty late age uh, relative to other runners. Right. I've been with you on that transition, and it's been remarkable to watch. And that episode captures it well. Yeah. Um, another one that uh, stands out for me is episode 66, where... We share um, what we called a sprint review agenda. And there's a couple of reasons I think this is an interesting episode. The first is that there's been uh, like whole books written on how to do other parts of Scrum, like the retrospective. There are great books on how to do retrospect as well. And there's just so little written about, well, what, what do we do in a sprint review? Like it gets the short shrift for some reason <laughs> amongst all of the, the parts of Scrum. And I think can be... Uh, as important as anything else, if not more important, if what we really care about is building the right product. So uh, we we share this agenda for how to run that meeting well. And uh, the other reason I, I like that episode is that it turns out that what we're really sharing is how do you review work in progress when it's not all the way done, but you want to get feedback on it. And then we deal a little bit with the psychology of that, where you really want some celebration. You want some kudos when you're in the middle of something for the hard work, but you also want to learn from it. And you also want to build trust that we're doing good stuff around here. And so we found that that agenda, even though we kind of called it a sprint review agenda is actually a really good path to take for anything that you're in the middle of. And we've seen executives use that with, you know, slide decks for how they're going to communicate about a thing, all different contexts. And it's just been a really powerful uh, set of steps to get good feedback on anything that you're in the middle of. I'll, I'll hit a couple other ones. Um, both of these are sort of on the leadership side. Um, episode 71 is where we shared uh, a term that we think we've coined <laughs> uh, called culture signals. And what we found is we worked with a lot of really um, powerful leaders who were trying to change culture. And as we read a lot of stories and read case studies and examples of what really effective leaders did, is that they send signals about what is expected around here uh, that cut through the cognitive dissonance and the cognitive load of having to make trade-offs all the time. And so in that episode, we share examples of really clear culture signals uh, 
that uh, are, are effective at changing a culture. Because uh, just saying this, this is now what's important is not enough. People either don't believe it or they still have to make trade-offs and they don't know how to balance the new thing that the leader's talking about versus this other thing that also might be important. So Culture Signals, episode 71 is another one to check out. I think the last one I'll mention here is episode 85, where we talk about our experience with the leadership circle, uh, which is a model for thinking about leadership and specifically growth as a leader. Uh, that has been transformational for me personally. I know for you as well, Richard, has had some really powerful effects. And uh, we kind of share how the model works, but then reflect a little bit on on how it's changed us, not just as leaders in a work environment, but how it's impacted us even in our family relationships and with friends. Um, so Leadership Circle episode 85 would be uh, the other one that I would point out. One of the things I particularly love about the Leadership Circle is that there are layers of application to it. Just knowing about the model, like every month or two, somebody sitting at my kitchen table talking about some challenge in their life, and we end up talking about the leadership circle, and I pull out the brochure and that sort of thing. And, and they've never done a self-assessment, let alone a 360 and coaching and all the things we do around it. They immediately get more options for their own development and for understanding people. And so just going through that episode immediately has some power and then you can keep following that into deeper engagement with it and more work on yourself. So that is a fun one. So those are my favorites, Richard's favorites. Um, we thought it would be interesting to find out what your favorites were. Uh, so we went and looked at our analytics on YouTube and on our podcast uh, uh, client Castos to see what were the most popular episodes over uh, these years. And um, some of those we've already mentioned so our rule was, what are some, uh, what are the most popular ones that Richard and I didn't already talk about? So the top one that we haven't talked about yet is episode 16. So pretty early days here on unrealistic deadlines. And Richard, uh, you you tell a fun story in that one. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, this is the but we must. But episode. we must. Yeah, <laughs> like we can't make it fit, but we must. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, yeah, so what? if if you're experiencing the but we must leadership, <laughs> check out episode 16. Yep. Uh, then the next one is a pretty recent one um, where we talked about what we should focus on as a new product owner. That was episode 73. Um, Richard, why do you think this one resonated so much? I think because a lot of people get um, kind of christened as the product owner. <laughs> And don't really know what does that mean? I've been a product manager. Is this something different? Or um, I haven't worked in product ever, but now we're using Scrum. And so now I'm a product owner. And in that episode, we distill it down to what do you do in your first 30 to 90 days as a product owner to be effective? There were definitely some themes in these top episodes. Um, that, that first one that we mentioned is kind of like, how do I actually make this stuff work in the real world? Um, the, the, uh, what do I do as a new product owner? And then the next most popular one, which is the PO board overview are both pretty product owner centric. Um, so episode 45 was number three on our list. Um, the PO board overview where Richard walks through, uh, a way to visualize the product backlog, but more importantly, a way to make the life of a product owner manageable and sane, because it is, I think the most overstuffed role of any of the scrum roles for sure. 
uh, we're just asking product owners to do a lot of things and to do that all as one person. And the PO board is a visualization tool and kind of a set of simple rules to follow that really helps make the day-to-day life of a product owner manageable and um, sustainable. Um, one of the Scrum values is focus, and that seems to apply for everybody but the product owner. So with the PO board, we try to make it an answer to what do I focus on right now so that I don't have to focus on all these different time horizons and stakeholders and things all at once. And that really has led to calm, sustainable, continuous backlog refinement for product owners. When we were looking at the analytics, the next set was really a cluster. Uh, And so from episodes 57 through 61, we did a series of just here are our thoughts on how Scrum works and why it works when it works. We kicked that off with episode 57, which consistently gets ranked among our top probably three or four. Uh, That one's called Why Scrum Works When It Works, where we talk about Scrum not as it's going to solve every problem that every team has in every industry and every company, but how do we know when it might work and what about it works? And so we kind of give the the why behind Scrum. And then the next four episodes, we hit each of the main events in Scrum, the planning meeting, the daily Scrum, the sprint review and the sprint retrospective. And those consistently are among the top ranked ones. And I think that's just because they're, uh, there are the rules of Scrum and there's plenty written about here's how Scrum works. Uh, but in each of these episodes, we try and dig into the why it might work. And here are some ways you might think about doing that more effectively, especially when we get into kind of how to facilitate those meetings. Some of our favorite tips and tricks that you'll find in those episodes. So 57 through 61. And then 63, we talk about the research on what makes an effective team totally outside of Scrum. But it turns out one of the things that makes Scrum work is particular kind of team composition and structures around the team and things like that. And and that plays both ways. You're more likely to be successful with Scrum if you have these six conditions and Scrum helps you create some of those six conditions. So 63 is a good one for thinking about teams apart from any particular method of work. And then the last one that we'll list here, I don't know, we didn't know how far to go in our list of analytics, but these ones all sort of, there was a gap between these ones and then the next kind of category. Um, And the last one, episode 68, is dealing with interruptions. And it's just, I think, probably the most common question we get with any client in any class that we're teaching that is sort of... uh, related to Scrum in any way is, yeah, but (laughs) how do we deal with interruptions to the things that we planned on working on this sprint or this week or whatever method people are using? How do we deal with interruptions? And so we give you some pretty concrete techniques for how to deal with that in episode 68. All right, let's shift to zooming out and reflecting a little bit. Uh, Peter, what have you changed your mind about or how has your thinking changed since we started the show back in early 2019? I always find that a difficult question because I don't remember how I used to think, but luckily we have some records of that, right, (laughs) using the show. And uh, one of the things that I think has evolved quite a bit for me and how I think about it is um, when I was uh, leading some transformation efforts in the 2010 timeframe, I came across uh, Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organizations where he lays out this model for how organizations have evolved over the centuries and then how any given organization might evolve through those same stages, depending on the type of leadership, the type of structures you put into place. And I was really fired up about it because to me, it seemed like a logical explanation for why things were the way they were. 
as well as a roadmap to how to make things better. And uh, so I did a, an animation of that really to help me understand it better. I did an animated video, uh, kind of an explainer style whiteboard video around that and posted it. And that thing went viral and it's still the most viral thing I've ever done. And sort of, um, it's not quite ironically, but uh, to, <laughs> coincidentally, <laughs> the thing that my thinking has changed a little bit on, which is that I, I don't see that and the research doesn't really bear it out that that is actually a map of how things have evolved um, nor is it a good uh, way to predict what to do next and how to shift an organization um, and so the thing I'm most known for by a broad audience is a thing that my thinking has changed on quite a bit what I do find really useful in, in Lalu's model is that I think it does do a good job of describing sort of common value sets. And so I find it really uh, useful when I'm talking to an individual and starting to pick up on cues about what that person really values. And it's less about stages of values to me anymore as it is today, what does this person really value? And so I, I can still use sort of the color shorthand uh, in the back of my head and say, oh, okay, I'm hearing a lot of amber here. Or I'm hearing a lot of orange here. Okay, that, that tells me a little bit about what's important to this person right now. And then whatever I care about, I can describe in terms that will benefit for those values. So it really goes back to an episode we haven't mentioned yet um, about how to uh, basically treating all stakeholders like customers. I use this as a shorthand for this is a customer, potential customer of the thing that we might want. What do they care about? And uh, it's been really useful for that, but not the way that I thought it would be. Um, we already mentioned another thing that has really shifted for me, which is in episode 63, Richard, you mentioned the six conditions. It's really good research, first of all, on uh, conditions for successful teams. And I, I used to think that um, because this was the experience of my team, if we just get scrum working, then that's a good building point for other things to go around it. What I recognize now is that the reason, one of the reasons our team was successful with Scrum is because we already had the six conditions in place. By and large, we had the six conditions and therefore Scrum worked really well for our team. And so I've started to see now the six conditions as an important precursor to doing Scrum well. And in, when I teach Scrum these days, I teach the six conditions before I teach much about Scrum. Um, because that seems to be the thing that matters. So that's been a shift in my thinking is really what's the job of leadership? What's the job of the team? It's to make these six conditions happen. And then you can start using things like Scrum or whatever you want to use to get some benefit. How about you? I'm going to flip it around. What have you changed your mind about or how has your thinking changed? Yeah. Uh, I was looking back over the shows this last week, reflecting on that and noticing some things that have changed. And one thing that was striking to me is that Scrum seems both more important and less important to me now than it did four years ago. And uh, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, it's less important in the sense that I don't care that much about Scrum mechanics and Scrum language and, and some of those things. Um, I certainly don't value some of the baggage that Scrum has picked up, which we talked about a few episodes ago and uh, the viral Scrum criticism episode. Uh, but there's a sense in which Scrum has become more important to me as I've seen what happens when you 
ditch some of the things in Scrum, like a fully cross-functional team, uh, like the Scrum events do really important jobs around synchronizing your work and figuring out how you're going to collaborate each day to work together, reflecting on what you've built and how you're building it. It turns out those basic building blocks of Scrum are pretty essential no matter what you call it. And I've seen a lot of negative effects from people using the language of Scrum or the language of an agile approach and missing some of the core things there. And so I care a lot more about those now. I actually feel a little stronger about Scrum as a useful starting point for most product development teams. And I care less about Scrum as Scrum at the same time. The other thing that I think has changed for me is uh, we're way clearer now on the importance and role of management in highly empowered organizations. I think back when we first started the show, one of our best case studies was an organization that had gotten rid of um, most levels of management and was trying to be fully self-organizing. And there were a lot of interesting organizations we were looking at like that coming out of um, like Lulu's work. And then there were some examples of really good leaders that we knew, but we didn't really have a systematic way to make sense of what's going on there. And I think as we've developed the three jobs model, it's become clear that there are these things that need to happen in organizations. And sometimes they're more built into the system or delegated among various roles. Sometimes they happen in more traditional hierarchical structures, but hierarchies in service of larger goals and thriving together. And both of those can work. And even that organization that was our real case study for getting rid of management and becoming self-organizing ended up still having to build all of those structures and systems in. They were just distributed or in some cases concentrated in a small number of senior leaders who got overwhelmed with that. Uh, so we're much clearer now than we were four years ago on management and how to do it well in a highly empowered org. Now, we didn't consciously structure the show this way, Richard, but uh, as you were talking about how Scrum is both more important and less important, and there are just logical things that you need to do as humans, I just realized that we sort of structured this show uh, using Scrum. Because what we've done is we've done a bit of a review on here, here, here's what we built. Um, we've reflected on what we learned by building it. And now we're going to shift into the retrospective where we reflect on the process for how we built it. And so, no joke, we didn't talk about this at all, but those structures just make their way in when you're talking about <laughs> humans collaborating around work. So let's shift into retro mode now. And I'll ask, what's the process of producing a weekly show taught you? Mm. Um, you actually don't really know this because you've been on vacation running the Grand Canyon, but... The newsletter coming out this week is actually about this very topic, and I go into more depth about the things that we've learned from producing the show and what that means for people who are doing other creative uh, complex work. But to summarize a little bit here, the biggest thing for me is the importance of systems and habits. When we first started the show, it was modeled as a season was a project. We would get together, we'd shoot five episodes in the same place, we'd spend weeks doing post-production and eventually get the thing out into the world, and then we'd be exhausted. And we'd have to get up the energy to do it again and figure out what the next season would be. When we relaunched the show, well, like 
80 some episodes ago in early 2022, we decided to just commit to making a habit out of it for a quarter. Yeah. And then we just did it week after week. And over time, we built systems and habits where we no longer ask, well, should we do a show again? Now it's, what should we do? And we just follow our checklists and do what we do week in and week out. And I think that has made it easier and it's probably made it better because we've had more reps of doing the thing. Uh, by the way, if you don't get our newsletter and you haven't seen that, um, you can read that issue at humanizingwork.com slash 100 shows, humanizingwork.com slash 100 shows, or go to the library section of the Humanizing Work website. And while you're there, subscribe in the footer at the bottom so you do get our weekly newsletter, which has one key idea every week that's usually different from what we're talking about on the show. So you can learn two new things from us each week. Uh, how about you? What have you learned in the process? Um, similar to you reflecting on those early episodes, I remember when we first started it, even coming up with a five-episode arc, like what are we going to talk about? Uh, just topics seemed like a huge amount of work. And now when we meet to figure out, you know, what do the next couple episodes look like? We try and keep a queue of a few of them, you know, ready to go. Now it seems like there are just endless episode ideas. So it's a little bit going back to that self-limiting story of doing a podcast is hard <laughs> and, and saying, well, it doesn't have to be. It's all about the habits you develop, right? Um, and so now I think more of the show is, I think in the same way that a lot of really good writers think about writing, and Richard, I would include you in that category. So I'm curious if, if you feel the same way about this. But I think of another episode of the show as just a chance for me to explore something I'm curious about. So what am I curious about right now? What am I reading about? What am I experiencing with clients? What are we hearing from uh, people that are writing to us? Uh, and just uh, uh, using that as a tool to explore things and stay curious and then uh, hopefully share what we discover as we dig into that stuff with a broader audience and, and then to hopefully let that serve them in some way. Uh, so it's no longer like this big, oh, what are we going to do? It's like, huh, what are we curious about right now? And there are just so many things we're curious about and so many things we're working on that it's, it's been a nice tool to like a medium for us to do that job of staying curious and trying to share what we're learning with a broad group of people. That's especially interesting with the mailbag episodes where people send us a question or a challenge when we're figuring out the episode, whether we're scripting or doing it more conversationally, uh, the process of figuring out what we're going to say is often a process of figuring out what do we even think about this? And we kind of write or talk our way into clarity about it. The, the other thing that really sticks out to me is I remember back to before we had our own show and I would listen to things like This American Life or Planet Money, you know, like NPR shows. And I remember the credits at the end where they'd list 20 different people. And I remember thinking, what do all those people do? And one of the things that has become really clear to me after 100 episodes is even though our show is not nearly as polished or professional as those, that this is a team effort. There are a lot of people involved in a lot of different ways, like certainly our humanizing work team, Angie, Sam, Kathy, Laura, Kieran, all have different ways of contributing. And I don't even know what some of them are. There's some things behind the scenes where 
I know somebody does that. I actually don't know who from week to week because the system just works. Yeah. Related to that, I think of um, this idea of the team effort. And I think we'd be remiss in not um, expressing some gratitude to our home teams, Richard, you and I. Um, So one of the, (laughs) you joked about uh, the anniversary coming up. Well, I think if all goes well, that this episode will, will come out on my wife, Annie's birthday. And so I was reflecting on that a little bit and saying, uh, there's no way that this show exists without Annie's support. Um, Annie's superpower is, uh, she cares for people. And so when I'm, occasionally having to put in extra hours or needing to accommodate, uh, Richard and I are going to shoot now. So will you please take the dogs and do a thing with them so they don't interrupt it or, um, doing those things. She's, she never bats an eye. It's always, of course, of course, I'm happy to do that. She's just so supportive, uh, of all that we do collectively. Uh, she's there for the ups, but especially for the downs when things get hard. Um, and so special happy birthday to my wife, Annie, who is uh, my strongest supporter and my best teammate. Yeah, same experience over here. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is uh, when we're thinking about all the other people that help is the audience. Um, and especially folks that frequently comment or send us questions or share the content. Um, I frequently hear from people that I haven't talked to in a long time, old clients, uh, new clients. Uh, and just reconnecting. And often I'll hear somebody mention the show and say, oh yeah, you know that episode you did on this? That was really helpful in this um, this challenge we were facing. We very frequently hear something like, how did you know that, that that's the challenge I was facing on my team? Um, and so it's really great to hear that. And then especially those who are frequently commenting, uh, got a shout out my mom there, who's our most frequent uh, YouTube commenter, um, not just because she's my mom, but she's... <laughs> no, she she's, asks good questions and brings <laughs> up good, good points. It's not just, hey, Peter, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> she's worked in the corporate world for a long time uh, and, and has a lot of good insight and, and is, just has a keen mind anyway. Um, but also uh, folks like Michael and Nicole and Pam, who often will send us great uh, mailbag questions or share an episode that they thought was relevant. So we really appreciate all of you who are doing that uh, and and wanted to shout out a few of those folks in particular for being uh, really on top of that. And we appreciate that. Last thing, we've been looking back at the previous 100 episodes. Let's look forward another 100 episodes. So about two years from now, what do you hope is true then that may not be as much now? There's this a term that I learned from the great Jerry Weinberg, uh, who I had the pleasure of taking some training with and is, I know has been a mentor to a lot of people in the software world and the agile space as well. Certainly consider him in that category for me. And uh, one of Weinberg's laws of consulting uh, is what he calls the law of raspberry jam. And the idea of this law is that uh, you have a a limited amount of raspberry jam to spread. You can spread it really deep on a small piece of toast, <laughs> or you can spread it really thin over more toast. And he, uh, he uses this to talk about what should you do as a consultant. Do you want to go really deep with a single client or in a specific problem space, or do you want to go thin across a broad space? And of course, that applies way outside of the consulting world, like all of Jerry's lessons do. Um, 
in some ways, the Humanizing Work Show gives us a chance to spread our raspberry jam as far as we possibly can. And uh, I've always been intrigued with the idea that there needs to be a conflict there. Uh, like, I'm wondering how Eli Goldratt would apply the evaporating cloud <laughs> approach to the law of raspberry jam. And so what do I hope is true two years from now? I hope we're spreading more jam to more people and uh, I think a broader range of listeners. Um, we, we have a lot of great listeners that are, are like us from the Agile background. And what we're finding is that so many of the things we talk about are just relevant in life and relevant in work, whether you're taking an Agile approach or not. And so I'm, I'm hoping that our Raspberry Jam can reach a broader audience. Mm. And along those lines, it would be really interesting to hear from you if you're in the audience and you're not in the agile software development world, we'd love to hear how you found the show and what is particularly interesting about it to you. Cause that might help us make the show more relevant beyond the space where we came up and developed some of these ideas. Um, looking forward for me, uh, two years from now, I would love to see less emphasis in work on the agile mechanics and language and more actual human centric work. It feels like maybe this got worse during the last few years of the pandemic or just agile becoming more mainstream or something, but it seems like we have more of the terms and more of the language than ever before. And it seems like we have fewer people really thriving in their work from that. And that bothers me. And I would love to see it change over the next few years. And I hope our show and our consulting and writing and all the things we do can play some role in helping people find the, the core of what made things like Scrum so effective for you and me when we first discovered them and make human-centric work more of a thing in the world. Nice. Yeah, you don't even have to ask Richard. You can get an amen on that. Amen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think in this medium, a hundred episodes is a nice milestone and it's sort of tongue in cheek said, oh, it's just a number, but it really is important. Right. Um, but we also recognize that, um, a hundred episodes is just an early milestone for us. We hope it's the first of one of these types of milestones in a much longer story for us. I think it's kind of hard to recognize these things when you're in the middle of them. There's a little bit of a Dunning-Kruger thing going on here where we sort of feel like at this point we figured it out. We know how to do a weekly show now. <laughs> but I'm sure two years from now, when we're reflecting on episode 200, we'll see how much we still had to learn. And so we so appreciate all of you uh, who are tuning in on the journey so far. And we look forward to using the Humanizing Work Show as a tool uh, to help make work more meaningful, more compassionate, and I guess more useful in solving the big problems we face in our world today. And if you want to help us celebrate this milestone, uh, we'd invite you to share an episode that you think might be useful to somebody else um, and a little bit about why it was useful uh, and help spread the Raspberry Jam a little bit that way. Um, we appreciate all of you for tuning in and look forward to the next hundred. Mm -hmm.